Welcome to the UAUC Talk Show, a show where we talk to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Kuyat. Welcome. Hi, nice to, nice to visit with you guys. Thank you. So we want to start with a very important question that will set up the background for everything we'll talk about after that. Okay, I'm ready. What is light? What is light? Oh, that's a good basic question, I would agree. Uh, so light is uh, electromagnetic radiation. Uh, so when you have charges that move, they charges have electric fields, and when you oscillate them, then they have oscillating electric fields, and those oscillating electric fields create magnetic fields, and uh, which create electric fields, and so the whole thing can, can propagate out. So that's one uh, answer to the question. Uh, it's kind of a classical answer, what we would have said before 1900 or so. Uh, now we would say that also light is particles that we call photons, particles of light, uh, and they each have energy and they each have momentum. Uh, so light is a particle, photons are particles of energy, particles of light that that carry, carry energy with them. But then, what is a photon? Like, what, what is creating, that, like, that begs the question, right? Like, what is a photon? Ah, okay, that's a, another great question. So, uh, actually, I ask this sometimes in my graduate <laughs> quantum optics class. What is, what is a photon? Um, so we could give an operational definition, which is a photon that is a thing that can only be detected in one place. So in particular, if you have uh, a photon and, or any light and it hits uh, a partially silvered mirror, like a half-silvered mirror, a beam splitter, or even, even this container, see, it's a good prop because you can uh, see through it, but you can also see reflections off right. of it. So any uh, photons that are coming, for example, from the lights to this will have some uh, probability of being transmitted and some probability of being reflected. And in fact, actually, each photon will do both. It'll be transmitted and reflected at the same time. But if I have one photon and I put a detector in the transmitted port and in the reflected port, only one of those two detectors will click if I have a single photon. That's different than taking just like an attenuated laser pulse. An attenuated laser pulse does not have a definite number of photons, so you can definitely get things showing up at both, at both of the two ports. And that's common for waves, right? Waves often are going in multiple places at once. That's the fact that both of you guys can hear me at the same time is because the wave is going to both of you at once. Uh, if I had a single photon that was going, the single photon could indeed go to both of you at once, uh, but and only one of you would see it, and then it would disappear by the other person. So that is the uh, an operational definition. Uh, there is a very formal definition that a photon is an excitation of an electromagnetic mode. Uh, that's a, like a quantum field theory definition. Um, and that can be helpful actually as a definition just in terms of uh, electromagnetic mode tells you like where, where the photon is, what shape it is, uh, tells you how fast it's propagating. For example, if it's in glass, it's propagating more slowly. Tells you what color or what range of colors it is. Tells you when it is and what the temporal shape of it is. So the mode sort of is like everything. But you could think about the mode as sort of like a, um, a roller coaster car. And then inside that mode, you could put no photons. So you could have the vacuum. Or you could put in one photon or two photons. Or you could put in an indefinite number, like an attenuated uh, laser pulse. Or a different type of uh, indefinite number, like from a, a candle or something like that. So all of those could be in the same mode, but you have different numbers of excitations in them. So that is both the very um, 
down-to-earth answer in a way. You can only detect it in one place. Uh, and also the, this kind of formal mathy definition. The other thing, the, just the other quick answer to that, since you sort of said, well, how do you get it or how do you create it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's another good question. Um, so uh, let's say you wanted to have exactly one photon. And that turns out that that's not that easy to, well, Okay, so one thing you can do is you could just take like a single atom, and if you take the single atom and you excite it, so you excite the electron from some low energy state to mm -hmm. some high energy state, and then you just let it go, you just let it decay, the, it'll, the electron will fall back down, the atom will decay back to its ground state, and it will emit a photon doing that. And that happens with atoms, it happens with molecules. In some sense, almost everything that you're seeing right now is happening because that process is happening all the time. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that that photon tends to go off, for example, in all directions. And if you actually wanted a single photon source, which it turns out is a very valuable commodity in the type of work that I do with quantum communication and such, it's nice to have a source of single photons. Uh, you really want your single photons, you know, at, like at a particular time, at a particular color, and going in a particular direction. You don't want them just going everywhere, and that's not so easy to get that to happen if you've got these atoms, which again want to emit photons in all directions. There are things you can do, putting them in cavities and such that can cause them more preferentially to go in one direction. Um, the other way that we do it is we have sources uh, that occasionally make a pair of photons, a pair of photons, and then if I detect one of those photons, then I know that there's another photon there. So that's another way of getting a photon. And before we start moving into how photons play into your research, do you still have a car with a photon I, license plate? I do, and a, and a cool and a cool emblem on the hood, even. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. I didn't see that one. You guys can come and <laughs> come and take a look at. You still drive it? Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. So, photons. It's my, it's my third one, actually, my third photon. Really? Yeah. Like third photon car. The same car, the same car yeah, the same. They're all Honda Del Sols, but they, turn to, they tend to rust out in our weather here. So, okay. they're all from 1997 because that's the last year they made them. So, you just keep finding good ones. <laughs> Sorry, I, I keep hoping that they're finally going to come up with an electric vehicle that's going to be like sustainable uh, and can like, get me to Chicago and back on a single charge, and then I'll, then I'll swap. But why that car? They're really awesome. Um, Hondas are very reliable. So aside from the rust issue, which is not really their fault, right, it's a right. material science thing. Yeah, so they've all had more than 250,000 miles on them. And they were working in just fine condition, basically. Um, also, it has a, it, the top comes off. So it's kind convertible. of nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. convertible. Um, and, and it has a huge amount of room in the trunk, even though it's very small. It has enough room that even with the top in the trunk, which is where it goes, you can still put a full set of luggage in. Um, and it has really good visibility out the rear window, which is, it turns out, <laughs> these are like super, sound like they're super simple things. But if you go, at a lot of cars these days that are like kind of sporty, uh, the rear window is like this really slanty thing, and it's just a little uh. strip. And if you're in a little car, you can't see out the rear window, and no one else can see you if you're in a little car, or at least you're harder to see. So it's really good to have good visibility. So there really aren't very many options. And it gets good gas mileage. It's like 34 miles a gallon. Oh, wow. From a 1997 car? That's yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, it's awesome. 
And, you know, it looks nice, too. Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the hail, when we had hail damage a couple of years ago, then I had to get a bunch of it, pieces replaced on it. Oh, wow. So, photons. So, that could probably, just by having you know, three cars, three photons, that definitely tells how much you love photons. So, how important are, you know, like you use photons for a lot of your research in, in quantum mm -hmm. uh, cryptography. So, but before we get into the, the details of that, um, I'd love to talk about the, just quickly the, and briefly, the difference between how we do communications like now and how we do, how we would like to do communications in the future with quantum and how you use photons on that. Great. So uh, right now we communicate obviously a lot of different ways. At the moment we're having acoustic waves that are going from me to you, uh, but they're pretty slow. Uh, I mean, if we're only going this distance, there's no problem, yeah, but if we're no trying to go across the country, then it would take a long time to get a signal from one to the other. Also, the energy uh, tends to dissipate, and you need this intervening mm. medium, uh, and so that's not so good. So mostly our communications are done. Uh, of course, we also can see each other. You know, we do sign language or something, uh, but, but mostly we're not doing that, right? Mostly we're sending, uh, say, digital information in some way. We're encoding our, our communications, our cell phone transmissions into a string of zeros and ones, and then we're going to send them uh, from one person to another. And we do that either through free space or through optical fibers, but in, in both cases we're using some type of photons. In, in the case of... Uh, in the case of a cell phone, uh, these are photons at, uh, in the microwave regime, uh, gigahertz or above frequency photons. Um, and in the, uh, in the case of going through a fiber optic cable, then they're, they're quite a bit shorter, shorter wavelength photons of uh, typically one and a half microns or something like that. Uh, just to put that in perspective, uh, your hair is about 100 microns in diameter, something like that. Uh, typical visible light like this green is something like 530 microns-ish, yeah, okay. and this red is like 650. So, sorry, 530 nanometers. The red is maybe 600 nanometers. Blue yeah. would be like 400 nanometers. So typical telecommunication fiber are using something like one, 1,500 nanometers or 1 1.5 microns. Okay, so in all of those cases, uh, you know, there's some kind of... I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could send zeros and ones. You know, one way you could is just send nothing when you want a zero and send something when you want a one, mm. that's, that's really not typically a good way to do things. <laughs> because uh, if you have a lot of loss in the channel, you like to distinguish between nothing getting through and trying to send a zero. So it's better to have some sort of encoding of when you're trying to send a zero and a different one when you're trying to send a one. So just as, as a simple example, uh, to be honest, this is not my area, so I'm kind of yeah. completely making this up. But you could imagine having, you know, three three pulses uh, in a row if you wanted uh, a one, and just just you know, a, a, a pulse, a blank, and a pulse if you wanted a zero, and then that would be then as long as you detect one of those two, you know whether you've got a zero or a one. In any event, in all of these cases, whatever kind of encoding, uh, typically all the things we've discussed so far. You're sending pulses that have many, many, many photons in them. So in an optical fiber, let's say it has a million photons, something like that, uh, per, per, per each of these slots. And the advantage to that is that as you go through fiber, there's loss in the fiber. There's some scattering. Um, it's about uh, the amount of loss 
uh, for the engineering types, if there are any engineering people who listen to this, is something like uh, 0.2 dB per kilometer. So if you go 100 kilometers, that's like 20 dB, and 20 dB means that 1 in 100 is getting through. So that's the thing. 1% transmission through 100 kilometers of fiber is the thing to remember. So uh, if you have a million photons and you go through 100 kilometers of fiber, uh, okay, you won't have a million anymore. You'll have um, 10,000 instead. But as long as you have a detector that can see 10,000 photons, there's no problem. You can see that, or you can go into an amplifier and you can boost that 10,000 back up to uh, a million, for example, and then send it to the next link. And that's what we have. We have repeaters uh, in our fiber networks. You put this thing in, it gets a signal in, measures it, uh, amplifies it. Well, a couple ways of doing it. Either you measure it and then you, you just send another thing, or you just go through an amplifier and, and you just send the thing without actually measuring it in the middle. So that's how the typical classical uh, communications work. Uh, if you go through free space, you don't have that loss typically. I mean, there's not much loss in going through the air. If you're going through clouds, it's different, <laughs> so that's an issue. Uh, some wavelengths go better through clouds and fogs, like long wavelengths, you know, a couple microns, it turns out, can propagate through fog. Um, and th sorry, the reason I bring that up, it, and also things like uh, radio goes through fog, right? And the, the way that you know that is that it can be foggy out, and you still can get a signal on your radio in your car. Uh, on the other hand, optical doesn't go very well through fog, so it, in that sense, it's good that we're using radio frequencies to, to communicate. Um, right, but you have a lot less loss. The, uh, the thing in free space is that the, uh, uh, the signal tends to fall off like 1 over r squared. So you just think about uh, you know, a light bulb that's emitting light over all area, then as the sphere gets bigger and bigger, the surface area of the sphere is 4 pi r squared, so the bigger the sphere, the less, area, the less uh, flux you have in any given fixed area, so it falls like 1 over r squared. But 1 over r squared is much slower than exponential loss. Mm. So if you wanted to go, I, I said if you went uh, 100 kilometers, then only 1% of your light would get through. Uh, if you go 200 kilometers, it's not that half a percent gets through, it's that 1% of 1% gets through. So mm. then it's only 10 to the minus 4. And if you go 300, then it's 10 to the minus 6. Um, so you know, if you go a kilom uh, if you go a thousand kilometers or something like that, then it's ten to the minus ten. So basically, if, if you really started with only a million photons, nothing would, you know, nothing would get through. There'd right. be no signal. Whereas if you go through free space and you have a pretty big aperture, then you could actually you could get a lot of light over a thousand kilometers. Okay, so that's all the classical mm. stuff. Do you want to ask a question? Yeah. Um, so how do you create these photons, though? Oh, all of those photons are done, uh, well, it's a little bit different depending on whether we're talking about in the telecommunication regime or we're talking about radio wave uh, or microwave or some things like that. Let's say radio wave. So in the, um, in the telecommunication case, uh, you use a laser, a telecommunication laser. So there's a material that you... Uh, I don't think I don't want to get into the how, how lasers work, but anyway, yeah. lasers are technological yeah. devices. So you have mirrors around a gain medium, and you can get a, a pretty bright pulse out uh, of light. Um, and then in the, um, and, but just by changing the electrical current into that thing, you can control with your Manipulate how many? Uh, and then in the case of like your cell phone or something like that, uh, you're driving currents, electrical currents, uh, up and down uh, an antenna, basically. 
And again, uh, if you have an electrical charge that's oscillating, that will make an oscillating electric field, and that creates a magnetic field, and that's, so that's how a radio station works, or how your cell phone works, basically. Is that good enough in terms of how we create? Like, I was thinking more like as repeaters, um, how would you like boost up the number of photons? Yeah, so uh, in a, uh, uh, again, a telecommunications repeater, right. yeah, there's a, sort of two ways you would do it. One is you might just have a detector that just detects the signal, and then now it's an electrical signal, and now you use that to trigger another laser that produces a new pulse. Mm. So you just keep repeating measure, produce, measure, produce, measure, produce at each, at each stage. The other thing you could do instead is go through an amplifier, an optical amplifier, uh, and the way that that works Loosely speaking, is you've got a bunch of atoms that are already kind of excited uh, through some other, you excite them sort of from the side, so to speak. Uh, so all those atoms are excited, and then if an optical pulse comes through, uh, because they're excited, they, um, well, this could be a long discussion. So photons, all particles in the universe can be broken into one of two different categories. They are either uh, bosons or fermions. Uh, bosons are, th so all particles have uh, some sort of angular momentum associated with them. It might be zero. Anyway, mm -hmm. so bosons have uh, one increments of one size, so-called Planck's constant h-bar of angular mm -hmm. momentum. So either, either none or h-bar or two h-bar or three h-bar. Photons right. have one h-bar of angular momentum. Uh, orbital angular momentum. So that means that, for example, if you take photons, in the case of photons, that orbital angular momentum uh, corresponds to uh, circular polarization, either right or left circular polarization. So if you take right circularly polarized light and you shine it on, like, on a black piece of paper, it's, it's absorbed. In principle, that paper will start rotating. It'll rotate a little bit. It'll pick up momentum, angular momentum from the photons and start rotating. Okay, so and then the other types of particles, uh, fermions have half h-bar, so it's either one half or three halves or five halves, something like that. And uh, those are like electrons um, have a half and neutrons have a half and protons have a half. And the thing about fermions, which are the second category, is that no, you, you can't get two fermions in exactly the same quantum state. And that's why when you're filling up atoms, when you're pouring the electrons into right, an atom, right. you only can get two electrons in any given mm. orbital, orbital. With one, with the, one with the spin up, one with the spin down, and then that's full. And then you've got to go to the next orbital, and that's how we get the periodic table. So that's why we, we are critically dependent our entire existence. The whole universe would be just like, well, be unrecognizable if, it were, if we didn't have that. Bosons, on the other hand, like to be in the same quantum state. So what that means is that if you have... Um, these, a bunch of these atoms in this amplifier, because that's what we started off with, how do we amplify this thing? Uh, and I send a photon through, then those atoms are going to be more likely to emit a photon in exactly the same mode into the same roller coaster car, which I had no idea we were going to talk about this when I started that out, but it, I knew that it'd be useful. So I've got this the person, the roller coaster car is coming over, and there's a car that already has one person in it, and the next person who's ready to drop is more likely to drop into the cart that already has a person. And now we're continuing on the track, and there's other people that are suspended waiting to drop into cars, and they're more likely to go into the one that has two people than has only one person or something. And so you can see how you can get an amplification a buildup in this case. So that's what happens. You've got a bunch of these atoms that are excited. I send a pulse in that has 
say, 100 photons, and at the beginning of the, the amplifier, that 100 becomes 200, and that it's even more likely to, to, to de-excite the other atoms into the same mode. Uh, and so in the end, you get, you know, you de-excite it, and you've, you've now taken a cart that only had a few people in it, and now you've re-instituted re it, you've re-filled it so that now it has whatever, however many photons are in the pulse, a million, something like that. Do photons truly, like, die? Would you say that, like, how would you say, like, the end of the life for a photon? What would it be? Mm -hmm. Or do you think photons exist indefinitely? No. No, they get, that, uh, they get absorbed, and they get absorbed, and the thing that they're absorbed in might just re-emit them in some other direction. That's possible. Um, certainly that happens... You know, all the time. Mm -hmm. In uh, it's kind of interesting. In the sun, it happens. So photons are created. You know, right. in the sun, there's these nuclear reactions, and that, that gives off photons as part of the reaction. Uh, and then they they just scatter off of all this stuff. So they go a little bit, then they're 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 they scatter. They're I guess virtually absorbed and then re-emitted or absorbed and re-emitted. And so actually, if you do a calculation because of all the scattering. That I think a single photon to get from the center of the sun to the edge of the sun takes like a, you know, thousands of years or something like that. It's it's pretty amazing. Even though if they had a straight line, it would take. Okay, and I don't remember what the diameter is, but it wouldn't take long. Yeah. It would take you know a lot less than a second to get to the surface, but because of all these scatterings, it can take a long time. Um, okay, in any event, uh, where was I going with that? Absorbing. Yeah. So the other thing that can happen is that the the thing that they're absorbed by. Um, like uh, let's take let's take the black rim here. So black means it's absorbing lots, you know, principle all the colors or something like mm -hmm. that. Your your hair with all its melanin that absorbs all this stuff. Uh, so when that is hitting it, uh, it's exciting. Um, it's exciting it, but then there are different vibrational modes, and so you're causing the whole thing to start vibrating in some way or other. And then that vibration is heating this thing up, and then that heat. Uh, this is in thermal equilibrium with the room. Those vibrations are then getting transferred to the vibrations in the plastic and the causing the air molecules around it to, to move. And so I would not, so the photon's gone at that stage, really, once, once the first uh, absorption happens. That's how photons die. <laughs> <laughs> and they, di you know, they die a lot. Right. Oh, uh, I guess, so that's the thing. So that's another way that bosons and fermions are sort of different is that normally the, the things that carry forces are the bosons, like electromagnetic forces carried by photons. Um, and those do not, you don't have a conservation law for how many there are, whereas for fermions usually there is some sort of conservation law. So if you start out with uh, you know, three electrons and you have some sort of interaction, typically you end up with three electrons at the end. Whereas we could start off with three photons, and then with an amplifier, suddenly instead of having three photons, I could have three hundred million. It, 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 we don't have to conserve. We don't have to conserve the numbers. So death is somehow less meaningful. If, well, I don't know. Or, or it's the only. I guess you don't have a death of a. For example, protons, as far as we know, are stable. They never disappear. I have to be careful what I say because I'm not really up to speed on, <laughs> on current particle physics. But I think I think people haven't seen protons decay. Um, so as far as we know, they don't, they don't ever die. That's so fascinating because, so photons, photons have energy, right? Mm -hmm. we, like, we can detect them, we can get ways to say, okay, there, there was a photon here, but they have no mass. That's true. But 
that just blows my mind. Like, why? How, how can it not have mass, but still have momentum and energy and so many properties associated to it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have a great answer for you. Um, I mean, in some sense, mass and energy are equivalent. I mean, you certainly have right, E equals mc squared, right. right? And so um, you're wanting it to be something more real when it's mass right. than when it's energy is, is kind of your own bias, I guess, as being a massive creature. Uh, mm. But the energy, let's say this, certainly the fact that light carries energy, look, that's not surprising because you go out in the sun and it feels warm and the sun right. is shining on you, so that is the energy, energy. of the sun coming at you. Uh, the fact that it's massless is a little bit weird, but on the other hand, it's traveling at the speed of light and relativity says that if you add uh, something... You're saying that's the reason it doesn't have mass? Do you think if it were slower, we would detect? Uh, I, no, yeah, actually, I, relativity makes it heavier. Well, see, that's the thing. So if you take a massive object and you get it going faster and faster, right. then, then effectively it's, it's heavier right. if the mass is increasing. Um, that's because the kinetic energy that you're putting into it e equals mc squared, so mm -hmm. that e from the kinetic energy is effectively like a mass so that's why it gets, you have to put more and more energy to get to things accelerating faster and faster. Like in particle accelerators, you've got to put a lot of energy in to get them to go close to the speed of light. And the closer you want, the more energy you have to put in to actually get them to go at the speed of light would take an infinite amount of energy. Mm. So photons start out with no mass, and so they can be propagating at the speed of light without needing an infinite amount of energy. Um, you have to be a little bit careful because you had said the one thing about uh, just the speed. If they went less than c, less than the speed of light, would somehow that fix anything? But that's a dangerous way to phrase it because it is completely possible for photons to go less than the speed of light. And the speed of light in if vacuum. the medium is different. Yeah, if they're right. going through like through my glasses, they're right. going a little bit well, slower. Quite a bit slower, fifty percent slower. Well, thirty-three percent slower, something like that. Um, so that in and of itself, I wouldn't say that they have mass in my glasses either. And then the fact that they carry momentum, uh, yeah, that's also a little bit strange. But the thing is, anything that has energy, anything that energy is always going to be associated with some kind of momentum as well, I guess, if it's directed, if it's moving in some, in some direction. And you can certainly get momentum even from uh, like electromagnetic waves, you can show that they have to carry momentum using Maxwell's equations and stuff. Um, and of course, you only notice that momentum if they're actually interacting with something. But if they completely didn't interact, then you wouldn't really notice that they had momentum. So for example, x-rays which completely pass through a piece of paper don't transfer any momentum onto that piece of paper at all. So in some sense, they don't in that context, you don't really know that they have mm -hmm. the momentum, so you only know it if they're interacting with something. And the way that they interact is they cause the, you know, the, you've got this electric field that's going up and down mm -hmm. in the electromagnetic wave, and you've got charges in the thing that they're interacting with, and those charges start to start to oscillate up and down with res in response to that electric field. So they're moving, but then they're moving in an electric field, and they're moving in a magnetic field, and when you take uh, things that are moving in a magnetic field, then they also get a force, and then you can show that they, that's how you can get momentum, light pressure, in terms of waves. But it's a lot easier to just think about it in terms of particles and photons. Um, and in fact, there's uh, one of the proofs 
that there were photons that really convinced people. So, um, you know, it had been proposed, Einstein proposed it, uh, that there were photons, that light came in these particles. He was trying to explain the uh, so-called photoelectric effect, mm -hmm. uh, which is that if you shine light onto a, me a metal, sometimes uh, it'll kick off an electron, and just the, the whether or not it does that depends not on how bright the light is, but on the energy of the light, the energy of the light has to be enough to sort of liberate the electron. Right. And you can't really explain that without using photons. It's pretty hard to explain. It's not impossible. It's pretty hard to explain without using photons. Uh, anyway, Einstein proposed that, and still people didn't really believe it. And one of the first things that really convinced people was this um, thing called Compton scattering, where you have a... Uh, I need a prop. I need a prop. I need an electron. There we go. Yeah, perfect, an electron. And you have an electron and I need another prop. There, a photon. There we go. A photon. So I have an electron and I have and I shine light on it this way. And um, the light has momentum, so the electron will get a kick. And if I just had a, a you know a plane wave coming in here, I guess I hope it's clear there's only one or two. There's only one of three things that could happen. One thing is that it could just not do anything. It could just go through. Logically, that's, that's possible. The other two things that could happen, well, what's one of them? <laughs> I'll ask you guys. I'm a professor, after all. You don't have questions <laughs> of people. So I've got this light shining in this right. way. I've got this electron sitting there. What could happen to it? It can propel it forward. It could get a kick forward. Perfect. And then the other thing, which I won't ask you to guess, at least in it, it, principle, it could actually go backwards, maybe. At least symmetry would allow that. But the thing that doesn't happen if you shine this in is you don't get a kick. If this is coming in this way, you don't get a kick that way. Right? By symmetry, there's just like, how would it know to go that way and not the other way? Because this is just something which is a uniform wave coming in. And yet, if you actually do this with photons, you'll find that, okay, sometimes it gets a kick that way, sometimes it gets a kick that way, sometimes it gets a kick that way. So this Compton scattering, you can get uh, deviations to the side. And you can like trivially explain what, how that is if you think about photons coming in and just conserving the momentum of this getting transferred into the you know, momentum of the other, the other thing. Um, I, I should say when that happens, then the photon goes off in a different... So, so if, if I have my photon coming off this way and this goes off this way, then the photon comes off. So right. you, have to, you have to conserve that there is no transverse momentum mm. to begin with. Yeah. Um, so you can explain that like super easily if you understand this from a per photon perspective. And it's just like almost impossible to explain from a, a wave, uh, of just a wave coming in that doesn't have... It's not a particle. And so that, that actually, when that was demonstrated, then that, I think, convinced a lot of people that, okay, they're, they're, we just have to adopt the photon thing, even though not everyone you know, liked it initially. It's the only way to, easy, easy way to explain something like this. Something that comes to mind that, okay, first, first question, I'll, I'll ask you something and so then I'll go to that. Um, so there are so many properties associated with the photon, right? Like we talk about frequency, wavelength. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what if you had... So about six or so-ish. Right. So if you were, let's say, vibrating at the same frequency as a photon, mm -hmm. what would you see? Like I know you're not traveling at the speed of the photon, so it would, you wouldn't be able to see anything. 
But let's say you were able, let's, this, as a thought experiment, if you were traveling at the same speed as a photon and also vibrating at the same frequency. Yeah, so let me try to answer that in a couple ways. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an impossible situation because you've, you've got me traveling at the speed, which I can't actually do, but, but I'll, let me try to address it. So first of all, um, being at the same frequency as the photon, when you say that I'm oscillating, you mean like my head is going back and forth or something like that? Sure. Okay. So you meant that to be something that's not possible, but let's say instead that I have an electromagnetic wave that's at one hertz, a one right, hertz right. radio wave, that, I guess, yeah, or something yeah. like that, then you, you, certainly, already you, certainly, are, you yeah. certainly could make such a thing, right. and you could move your head back and forth, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I guess... I guess what you would see then, to think about it a little bit, uh, but if I'm thinking about the way that I'm seeing something, okay, this is going to be hard for me to answer. So how do, we get, how do we see photons? Maybe that's the first question. Sure, yeah. Because um, that's going to be relevant, I guess. So We cannot see photons without photons. Or we need photons to see photons, right? Well, sure. I, I mean, if we, if we like restrict ourselves to our, like, Right, so we could talk a little bit about detecting all of these things, because I didn't, never really talked about that. You asked how do you produce the things, but you never asked how you detect them. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the radio waves. So in the radio waves, it's just the reverse of the way that you created them. You have an antenna, and when the electromagnetic wave comes in, uh, it, it hits the electrons in the antenna, and then they can oscillate up and down, and then they push on all the other, uh, other electrons, and at some point that pushes the electrons through, you know, back and forth through some circuit element, and uh, it can detect the changes in, you know, electric field, their changes in magnetic, I mean, usually electric is, I guess, what people would detect. Uh, anyway, so that's how, that's how we detect the uh, a radio wave. Um, and that's why, for example, it, it matters less now so, but uh, if you guys have a car antenna, does anyone have car antennas anymore? I don't mm -hmm. even know, like a big car antenna. Right, right. right. It depends on what the orientation is because you need to have it oriented so that if the wave is coming in up and down, it can drive the electrons up and down. If the wave is coming in up and down and your antenna is horizontal, you won't get any signal because the electrons can't really go anywhere. Uh, so the orientation of the antenna has to match the has to match the mode of the electromagnetic field that's coming in. It has to match the uh, the car, the, the 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 roller coaster car, in order for it to have a good match. Um, right. So in terms of how we detect uh, like optical photons, we typically don't think of it that way. Instead, we think of it, you know, the atom is in some, there's some atom or a molecule, it's in some ground state, and then when I shine the light on, it, uh, it's able to ex excite the electrons so that instead of being in this ground state, it's maybe in some excited state. Um, okay, and exactly what that process is, that's yet another more complicated thing. I mean, you, 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 can, you can quite quickly get yourself into a case where you really need a second a second graduate course <laughs> in order to really in order to really understand it at a pretty deep level, um, but we can just think about it just like an excitation that way. The way that you see uh, photons, it, that is certainly what happens. Uh, it happens. Uh, so you have different structures in your eye. You have rods and cones, cones. and mm -hmm. the, uh, the the cones. There are three types of them. One for the different colors, more or less red, green, and blue ish. Uh, and then the rods are the things Brightness. that detect yeah. uh, low light mm -hmm. uh, for low light sensitivity. So they don't have color because there's just one of them, so you don't distinguish. 
And uh, in, those, in those cases, those structures are coated uh, with molecules, mostly rhodopsin molecules, uh, which is some know, biological molecule that has a particular shape. And uh, when you hit it with a photon, uh, that excites it a little bit, and that excitation moves the electron around, and what happens, the entire thing changes its shape because of that, and it's normally uh, sitting where it's blocking some channel. <laughs> Different use of my prop. It's blocking some channel where there's some ions inside the cell and outside the cell or something like that, and then you hit this with a photon, and it changes shape, and then suddenly ions can flow. I don't can't remember if they flow in or out. But anyway, they, they move through the cell membrane, and a bunch of ions moving from one side to the other changes the potential. And then there's this like really complicated multi-stage multi, um, amplification process that occurs so that you can convert just uh, you know, one photon coming in, fires one rhodopsin molecule, opens this, that lets a bunch of ions through, but then there's more amplification, chemical amplification, so that you can finally get a thing on your synapse that you can maybe detect. So we actually have an experiment that's uh, still ongoing, trying to determine whether people can see single photons. So if I dark adapt you for an hour so that you don't have too much noise photons, mm. you'll be able to, and I send a single photon at you, will you be able to see the, say that you've seen it? Uh, so we know it's, it's pretty well established that the rods uh, can, can detect single photons. It almost has to be, and people have done things like with frog uh, rods from frog cells where they, they shine very, very dim, dim lights on them uh, and then they look uh, at the voltage signal coming out of them and they see a little blip, blip, mm. blip. It's something brighter if two photons happen to get absorbed. Uh, instead, you get a signal that's twice as big. Uh, so that's determined, but it's not known whether you can actually see a single photon. And uh, so actually we're always looking for, for people to volunteer for those studies. So if any of your <laughs> listeners want to contact me about that, we're always looking for people to willing to sit in a chair for a long time and being able to see single photons. And the reason that that would be cool, and I, and I will say we've certainly we've determined now that at least some people, if we can get like three photons onto the back of the eye, uh, can can detect that, can register that. Um, and I guess I could say just a second about how uh, how we do that experiment. So those experiments have been done for since the 1940s, I guess. And originally they were done sort of like you would get a hearing test where they uh, present you with a weaker and weaker stimulus and they just say, did you hear it? Or in this case, did you see it? And the, the problem with that sort of method is that people have a natural bias against giving a false positive response. So what that means is that people want to be pretty sure they've seen something before they're willing to say that they've mm. seen it, and that could lead to an artificially high threshold. And so the original experiments, it sort of seemed like the people needed something like five to eight photons on the back. So the way we do the experiment is quite different. So we take a single photon, um, and you know, we've talked about some ways to make them. We do it where we have these pairs, and then if we detect one, we know that we have one. So we take the single photon, and then we send it at random to one of two sets of uh, rods in the back of the eye. And the subject then has to, for every trial, has to answer, let's say, left or right. Um, even though nine times out of ten, even though we prepared a photon, we've sent a photon in, uh, it doesn't actually make it to the back of the eye or to the rods because there's loss in the, in the there's a lot of loss, it turns out, from the front to the back. And also uh, the fill factor is not that great, so you might just miss the rod entirely. Um, so even though nine times out of ten, there's no photon there, the person still has to answer left or right. And then you just see, do they do better than random guessing? 
because the photons are sent at random to mm. two different locations. And if they do better than random, then we know that they, they're able to see something. Uh, so if you can, if we can get like three photons to the back, for some people at least they can they can see that you know fairly reliably. Um, we don't yet know for one. It takes a lot of statistics to to be able to answer that. So if people want to contact me about participating in that. Uh, but what I was going to say, the thing that's cool, one, it'd be just be kind of fun to know what are the limits of human vision. Uh, but the, the, the other thing, though, is that if people can see single photons, then there's a really fun experiment you can do where instead of sending the single photon at random to the left or right side, you send the photon simultaneously to both sides. Because we already said if we have like a beam splitter, we can get the photon to go to both locations. So then one of two things has to happen. Either it's the person who's looking at the photon and detecting it is the one that's collapsing the wave function, that's causing the wave the photon to only be here and not be there, or vice versa. Because remember, we can't see it in both places right. at once. Either that's happening, and the photon, the person is collapsing the wave function, or the person becomes you know, analogous to a Schrodinger cat, where the person is now in a quantum superposition of having seen the photon in one location and having the, seen the photon in another location. So the, the state of the person becomes entangled with what the photon the does, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which is also like super interesting. And uh, so, you know, we're probably not going to see anything super weird because probably those signals disappear, the quantum signals, quantumness sort of disappears very quickly because of interactions with the rest of all the complicated stuff. Uh, but you never know, and I think it's interesting just to be able to ask the question, because until 10 years ago, you, you couldn't even think about asking the question. So, I mean, you could think about it, but there was just no way to even think about how you would answer, experimentally answer that question. Hmm. So, anyway, we're, you know, at some point we might get to that more advanced experiment. So that's how detectors work, how you can see things, and I'm trying to walk my way back up to what your original question was. Your original question was, how do we see things, and uh, there was one more, how do they die? Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, what my eventual, um, I would say my question was that if, let's say we have a highly dense material, like I was thinking about this one day, um, like how we can, let's say I want to see a stream of light, like in real time, just like going through, right? It's impossible to do that right now, right? Even with the best slow-mo cameras, it's still not fast enough to capture like light passing through. I saw a video, I think Caltech or MIT, but someone, someone they tried, they, they captured like light passing through an object. Mm -hmm. um, so what I was thinking is... Yeah, there are different ways you could do it. I mean, if you, uh, particularly if it's a bright light and it's scattering and some of the photons are going off to the side, then you can try and watch that happening. And uh, if you have uh, really good time resolution on your detector, so you have a detector that can have a time resolution of you know, 10 picoseconds or something that's about that, um, then in principle, you can, by timing, and you see a flash on your camera, if you know exactly when that's coming, then you can relate it to a time of flight and where the photons were, and you can retrodict. In that sense, you can sort of see it. Uh, and anyway, there are some other tricks you can do that maybe can cause it to flash as it's going through something. But it's almost, in that case, you're always, you're, you're propagating through something. If you're just going through vacuum, by definition, you're not going to see anything because the photon's only going to go in the direction it's going. Okay, so sorry. Back to your actual question then. What, what, would, it, what would it look like? Right, so I would imagine like if you had a super, super, super dense material, it was transparent, let's say, 
and like we shined a laser through it, like would I be able to see? And with the slow-mo camera too, just to make it even easier to let's say see the motion. Would, do you think it's possible to see like a stream just like passing through and like? Yeah, I don't see why. I mean, um, I would it take more than that to like visualize. I mean, assuming that you had a bright pulse again, so you're you're willing to sacrifice some of the photons because the thing that you see has to be because they're giving up energy that's coming to your detector, right? right. Whether it's a camera, a photocell your eye, anywhere. There's mm. got to be energy that's exciting those things. Um, so some of the energy is going to be lost from that original pulse, but otherwise I don't think it, I think that that should be fine. Th just the other thing I'll say is, let's say that you have a photon that's, because it's a little bit interesting, let's say you have a photon that's pretty long. So let's say you're, well, what do I mean by long? Not that the wavelength is long, but it's coming from, uh, you know, a, imagine I have a laser pointer and I turn it and I hold the button on for a second and then I let it go. Mm. Uh, so that I have this pulse that's really long, and now let's attenuate it so that I only have one photon, That's a, but it's a photon that's a second long, and now you're looking at it with your whatever you're looking at it is. If your detector resolution is you know, a lot less than that, a lot shorter than one second, then you will see the photon somewhere in that entire pulse, and then it'll disappear everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's like the um, it's kind of a continuous version of where I said you go through a beam splitter and the photon's either here or here. You only see it in one place. Now we're talking about the photon being in all of these different places along its trajectory. Uh, and as soon as you make a measurement, you know, you see it here. Let's see. Can I do this? You see it. <laughs> there. You see it there and you don't see it in any other places. And the next time you do it, I'll do an easier one this time. The next time you do it, you see it there. Or, you know, or or there, and it's at random where you actually see it. This concept of measurement and like the wave function collapse, like what, what do you think makes it collapse? Like what do you need to collapse a wave function? Yeah, so first I will say that uh, collapse is a, what will I say, a, a conversational tool uh, that we use to describe this process, so mm. not everyone even believes that there is a collapse. Really? Yeah, I mean, certain cosmologists talk about like the wave function of the universe, so that everything just keeps getting entangled to everything else and there's no collapse. Um, if you're a, a many universes person, a many worlds person, many worlds theory, many worlds theory, then there's also not a collapse. You just end up going, in this case, you where just I have keep a photon, splitting. You, you know, you're in the branch where the photon went mm -hmm. to the left, or you're in the branch where the photon went to the right. Right. Um, so there's not necessarily a, a collapse in that case. Um, tends to often get you answers pretty quickly, and so that's why it can be a useful story to tell. Whether or not there is a collapse, I guess I would say we don't. We, we don't know we for don't sure. Really know, I would say. Um, so that was one thing I was going to say in terms of what you need to have something that could be a collapse or that could be described by a collapse, you need to have some, some coupling between the thing you're trying to measure and the measurement device. And the coupling has to be strong enough that the final state of the measuring device is different for the two possible things you're looking at so that you get, oh, the photon went to the left or the photon went to the right. You could imagine instead I'll bring the photon paths together a little bit. I'll make my detector a little bit bigger. You could imagine instead 
Yeah, a photon went to the left, a photon went to the right, but these are really like overlapping a lot, and then you don't actually get much information. And so then it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily collapse. You just end up with the same kind of thing propagating through. Do you think there's a threshold for like these wave functions interacting and some of it might collapse it, some of them might not? Yeah, I mean, if you know, again, depending on, uh, like, like this example, um, you, you can calculate exactly what that threshold is in some sense, what makes these two things distinguishable or indistinguishable. Um, And that depends on, depends on wavelength and how much momentum they have and things like that. But basically, you know, if this has a particular momentum, if, if the measuring thing changes its momentum appreciably, uh, then you would say that it's collapsed. And e e even though maybe it's still propagating, so maybe it hasn't been absorbed, it could just be that it's, it's that the photon, we talked about Compton scattering where the photon goes off the electron. So in this case, maybe the thing that's monitoring whether the electron is, uh, whether the, the photon is there is just an electron. And then I monitor to see whether the electron has scattered or not. And if it has, then I'll say that the photon interacted with it. Um, the photon is still there, the electron is there, but now what has happened is that the photon and the electron are entangled with each other. And in fact, this, since we're talking about entanglement, um, Entanglement is this uh, quantum mechanical feature that describes quantum states of multiple part particles, but they're kind of special in that you, you can't write the total quantum state as just the quantum state of particle one and the quantum state of particle two, or however many particles there are. They're sort of inter interconnected with each other. And my favorite example of that, um, it's just because we've been it's going to fit in with everything else we talked about. If you imagine an atom that's out in space, that's excited out in space, and it decays, uh, that atom then, uh, th there's no vibrational modes if it's just a single atom, so it can't lose it to heat or anything like that. So that atom decays, it emits a photon, and as I said, that photon tends to go off in all directions because there's maybe nothing that's preferentially to say that it should go one way or another. So the photon is going off in all directions. But we also said, what's another property of the photon? What are the properties that we've talked about? <laughs> Talking about frequency wavelength. Um, the one that's more surprising, though. No mass? Or? No mass, and in particular, no mass is surprising because it has momentum. Momentum. Right? right? So the photon has momentum when it's going off. And because the photon has momentum, if I started off with an atom that was just sort of sitting there and didn't have any momentum, and the photon is doing this, what do we know about the atom? It has the momentum, but yeah. it has mass. The atom, uh, but in particular, in this case, the atom has to have the opposite momentum of the photon. Because initially, there was no photon. There was just a stationary atom. Mm -hmm. Finally, there's a photon that's going off in all these directions. So now the atom has to be simultaneously recoiling in all opposite directions. Right. Conserve. To conserve momentum. And so that's an entangled state. That is a, that's my favorite example of an entangled state. So it's an entanglement between the momentum of the photon and the momentum of the atom. The photon does not have a definite momentum. It's going everywhere. And the atom does not have a definite momentum. And yet they, their momenta have to be in opposite directions in order to conserve momentum. So what's interesting then is that when you, with your detector, your eye, that let's say can see a single photon, when you go out at night and you look up at the sky, if you, and let's say you're both doing it, if you happen to be the person Sorry, not you this time. If you happen to be the person that sees that photon, suddenly you can't be the person that sees it. So that photon, which was this big sphere, maybe it was emitted 100 years ago. So now it's a sphere that's 200 mm. 
light years. 200 light years <laughs> big, yeah, on a sphere, 200 light years. Suddenly, that wave function disappears everywhere else because you just saw it, and we already said that a photon is a thing that can only be detected in one place. So the fact that you saw it must mean that that wave function disappears everywhere. And because there's entanglement, that means that the atom, which had been anti-recoiling in every direction, now suddenly its wave function jumps to a particular location as though it had been recoiling away from you the whole last hundred years, you know, way before you were born or maybe even your parents, probably even your parents were born. Um, now suddenly the atom is in that location as though it had been moving away from you the whole time. Um, so that's weird. <laughs> that's really weird, right? Um, but I would say that's uh, my favorite example of entanglement and also collapse, if there is one. The other way of describing it is that there's not a collapse. It's just that now you've become entangled with it. You're also entangled with it because there's another possibility that you're the person who saw the thing instead. And so now we get this bigger and bigger wave function that's describing both of you. And now mm. you happen to you know, tell your friend, you happen to tell the readership, I'm the one who saw the photon. Or you happen to tell the readership, I'm the one that told, you know, saw the photon. And suddenly the whole readership becomes into these you know, two possible realities, one of which everyone heard you say that you saw it, and the other one everyone heard you say that you saw it. So the superposition state just gets bigger and bigger in this case. Um, so it's kind of mind-boggling mind to think about. Mm. Like quantum mechanics is fun. Yeah, it's fun. You know, you used to work at a national lab, and one of the things that you said that why you enjoy working and being at a, at a, at a university is that you have students that would ask questions that you would normally would not think about. Uh, indeed. And you know, this question probably you would not think about these, these fundamental things that you know probably you're not really thinking about. Because you would spend your time thinking about your projects in, in, in quantum information, quantum yeah, cryptography. That's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, I, I, I will say, <laughs> even when I was at a national lab, I would occasionally, you know, I'll talk to anyone about photons and cool quantum mechanics stuff because I feel like, I feel like everyone should know this. Not because everyone should know it, like they're going to need it, but in the same way that everyone should have heard the Brandenburg concertos because they're beautiful and they might really love them. They may not, in which cases, you know, that's also fine. But I feel like this stuff is just. It's just so intrinsically captivating. Okay, obviously I'm biased because this is what I do for a living. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, people do tend to like hearing about it. And it's not like it's, um, it's not like the Higgs boson or some high energy physics thing, which is really out there in some right. sense. I mean, you need a lot of background to be able to understand it. Um, you know, what I said right now, I think, was hopefully somewhat comprehensible. Right. And, uh, you know, you can see, you, when you look up at stars, you're, you're collapsing some wave functions, whether you, whether you think it or not. Uh, and you can see interference, like, really easily, you know, even if you just have a, a hair in a faraway street, mm. you can see particles being in two places at once. You can see classical interference. So it doesn't have to be a thing that's, like, removed from people. Um, so I guess that's part of my evangelism. <laughs> it's just uh, trying to expose people to things that they might find interesting. Which, you know, getting people curiosity to you know, ask these questions and, you know, you know, we do need, even though, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into that point of like, you know, why basic science is important or anything like that, but, um, you know, in, in a way, you know, that affects everything else that we end up doing. Agreed. Um, but um, let's talk about quantum. Where do you want to start? Because I know you have many projects. Um, 
Or do you, what, which one do you, do you want to start with? Indeed. Uh, well, let's start by answering your question. I should also say I have, tw I have a 20 minute deadline from now. So that's, that's okay. It's kind of move people in Craner. Um, so you asked that uh, way at the beginning, we've been tra tracking down this thing about the difference between uh, classical and quantum communication. And so we've talked about how classical communication would work. And then you said, what do I envision when you kind of implied when quantum replaces all of this, although that's you maybe didn't mean to. And in any event, that's absolutely not the goal. So right, right. quantum is absolutely not going to replace the right. classical case. Um, you could certainly use a single photon, and we said that single photons have properties. So one property, we've talked about a lot. Uh, we didn't talk too much about the polarization, um, but you, you could talk about a photon being horizontally polarized or vertically polarized. Um, I like that example because you get that example from, uh, you know, if you go to an IMAX theater. Yeah, the 3D polar, glasses. 3D glasses. One lens is transmitting mm -hmm. horizontal polarization, one's vertical. That way they can project both images on the screen at once, but each image only gets to the correct eye. Sorry, I need my other, I need my other electric field vector here, my other polarization. <laughs> so the, the nice thing about polarization um, is that it's pretty easy to understand if you have something that's horizontally polarized, fine. If you have something that's vertically polarized, fine. And if I had something that was a superposition of horizontal plus vertical, well, that would just give me something that was diagonally polarized. Mm -hmm. So horizontal plus vertical is just diagonal polarization. That's a quantum superposition state. And that's like not mysterious at all. No one, no one is bothered by if you, t if you tilt your polarizing, if you tilt your head when you're wearing uh, polarizing sunglasses, so that at 45 degrees, you're, you're looking at quantum superposition states of horizontal and vertical. It, it's not that, you know, foreign right. or not that mysterious. If instead, if instead of horizontal plus vertical, you had horizontal minus vertical, then you would get, uh, you know, minus mm -hmm. anti-diagonal. Uh, this was. That minus sign is a 180 degree phase shift, again, for engineering type people. If instead of 180 degree phase shift, you do a 90 degree phase shift, uh, then that's how you get circular, Polarized. circular mm. polarization, right and left circular, which is what we talked about. If you talk about right and left circular, that's about whether the orbital momentum is plus, you know, plus h bar mm. or minus h bar. So it's all, it's all interesting. It's all connected. Um, so, okay, so we can uh, encode information using the properties polarization is one. There's other things we could use, but let's just stick with polarization. I'd certainly do that, and I could send a single photon to encode one bit of information, and I could send classical bits that way, just by sending single photons with the property encoded in, in, in uh, say, the polarization, the bit value encoded in the polarization of the photon. But you should never, ever do that. The reason is that I said that there's all this loss in the channel. So if I want to go through 100 kilometers of fiber, and I have one photon, there's only a 1% chance it's going to make it through the end. So if I want to be pretty darn sure that my signal has made it, I'm going to send not even 100. I'm going to need to send you know, 500 or something like that to be pretty darn sure that something that, that one of them has made it. Um, so if I force myself to do that one photon at a time, and I've got to detect each photon, I can't. I can't send them so many of them that they're overlapping because I won't be able to detect one from the other. So I really need to um, spread them out then enough. And that comes to, okay, what's the time resolution of the detector? It depends on what kind of detector you have. But you know, at fastest, maybe uh, 10 picoseconds or something like that. So that's very, very, in some ways, it's very fast. 10 picoseconds is 10 to the minus uh, 
Minus 12. 11 12. seconds. Pika? Pico. Pico. Pico is 12. Right. But yeah. 10 of them would be 10 to the yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, that would be like 10. The most I could send would be 10 to the 11 photons per second then. Um, if instead I just have a laser pointer, I can put 10 to the 15 photons in one pulse, mm. <laughs> a very short pulse, and then I can handle all of these losses. It's no problem. So if you're going to send classical information, you are almost never, it's almost never a good idea to try and do it using quantum signals. Uh, you might be in a situation where you want to send something and you don't want other people to know that you're sending it, so maybe you want to have a very, very weak pulse so other people sort of aren't. aren't savvy to the fact that you're sending these you know, bright pulses down. Um, but to truly using quantum states is probably not that useful for that. What you can do, um, you can, uh, in quantum cryptography, you can send random, I can send a random zero or one down the channel by sending sing single photons. And I can use that to distribute a random key between the two of us. Um, and I might want to do that because if I have, if we ha share a random string of zeros and ones, we can use that to encrypt things in a way that's completely secure. If we each have this key and no one else knows what the key is, that is so-called secret key encryption or, or uh, private key encryption because uh, we're the only two people who have it, uh, then that you can do provably secure encryption that way. So there's no computer that can hack it because it's just a random string. The way that you would send a message, you would take your random message you would take your message, which again is a string of zeros and ones, so you could convert it into a string of zeros and ones. Um, and then you take your random key, which is also a string of zeros and ones, and then you just add them together modulo 2. So that means that if I add a 0 and a 0, I get a 0. If I add a 0 and a 1, I get a 1. If I add a 1 and a 1, that normally would be 2, but then I wrap it back yeah, into one. 0. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, and you just do that with every bit of the message you add a different bit of the key to it, and then you broadcast, that's called the ciphertext. So you broadcast that ciphertext, you, you put it on Facebook, you do whatever you want with it. It can be in a public channel, and no one who doesn't have the key, the random key, mm. can decrypt it. So there's no, um, there's no code to be broken. Uh, the code is just knowing what that random key is. So then the question is, how do you get the key from the two players typically called Alice and Bob. How do you get the key from Alice to Bob? And people do this sort of um, secret key encryption already, private key encryption. Uh, they do it, maybe they have a courier who has a briefcase that has a bunch of these things, or in, the, in World War uh, Two, I guess. Uh, this is called a one-time pad because the soldiers would go off with a pad of paper and on the mm. top sheet was a bunch of zeros and ones, basically, and they would use the top sheet and then they throw it away. Then if you ever reuse it, then that's bad. And once you reuse it, then people can get information. Mm. But if you never reuse it, then it's secure. Um, or, so you have a courier or you have a telephone cable that you is secure or you have a fiber optic and you're sending something down. And the problem with all of those ways of carrying the information is that the information is always stored classically. And classically, you can measure something without disturbing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, classically, if I have a billiard ball that's going in one of two different locations, I can just see, is it here or is it here? And it doesn't change the state of it. But in the quantum case, if you try and measure and you don't know the right way to measure it, uh, you will introduce a change. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I have my diagonally polarized photon, and instead, I try to measure, and I ask, is it horizontal or vertical? In asking whether it's horizontal or vertical, it, I will get the answer, horizontal or vertical. If it's originally diagonal, it's equally likely to be one of those two, but I'll, I'll only get one of them. I'll get that it's vertical. 
and now I've changed the state. And so if there's an eavesdropper who's listening in on this, um, I won't say conversation, but listening in on this key distribution protocol, uh, they will introduce errors, and those errors are detected, and then you know that you don't have a secure line, and you just never use an unsecure key. So the whole promise of quantum key distribution is that you can distribute a key so that there's never an undetected eavesdropper. And if you detect an eavesdropper, then you never use the key to encrypt anything. Mm. So you're, you're it's that, in that sense, you're guaranteed, if you do things well, you're guaranteed never to have a, uh, a message that is compromised. Because it's that vulnerable that any external source of, like, let's say a person is listening, that would immediately, like, mess with your connection, and that would just, no, like, let you know, right? Yeah, yeah, it'll show up as er errors or, you know, missing signals. So if you have a pulse, I should say, if you have a pulse that has uh, a million photons on it, first of all, it's not exactly a million. It's probably a million plus or minus a thousand, so mm. a thousand being the square root of a million. So if an eavesdropper were to just pull off a hundred of those photons, there's no way, even in principle, that you could necessarily see that that was missing. Right. So they, they're completely hidden in that regard. Uh, they could just record then what all the pulses were, and then they know the same thing that the receiver knows. So that's obviously not, <laughs> that's obviously insecure. If you do it with just one photon, and the eavesdropper takes the photon, it just never becomes part of the key. And so it doesn't help that the eavesdropper has it. The other thing that she cannot do Right, I didn't talk about this, uh, but now's the perfect time because we're talking about the quantum case. Um, in quantum mechanics, there's this thing called the no-cloning theorem. So you, if you have an unknown quantum state, you cannot make a copy of it. That's forbidden by laws of quantum mechanics. It's pretty easy to show if you wanted to. Afterward, I'm happy to have to show you in three lines of algebra why that's not why that's not possible. But in any event, you can't copy unknown quantum states, which is very very different. Remember the way that we talked about the classical case is that when the signals die out, we just put an amplifier there and we boost it up again and then we send it on. Absolutely does not work in the quantum case. The, the, that amplification process will basically uh, introduce a lot of noise and will distort the signal. So an eavesdropper cannot copy. If an eavesdropper could copy it, she would just take the photon, or not take it, she'd make a copy of it, she'd store the copy, and then she would wait to hear the rest of the protocol, and then she'd get the whole, all the key information. But it's not possible to do a copy. So all she can do is try and measure it, and the problem, the, the way the protocol is set up, which I haven't really described it, but anyway, um, it's set up, she doesn't know the right way to measure it, and she'll measure it wrong half the time, basically. So she'll introduce errors uh, that can then be detected. And that enables you to distribute a key, uh, which is great. So uh, in terms of our projects, uh, we uh, are doing some quantum, quantum key distribution. It's not that interesting as an overall protocol. Uh, I think there are other things that are, that are more interesting, but we're, uh, we're working on trying to do drone-to-drone -drone quantum communication with these uh, octocopter drones. And just uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, we actually had our first like quantum communication between two drones, and mm. some quantum key distribution is a little bit noisy, and we have people from collaborators from Ohio State, the Ohio State University coming, uh, actually coming tomorrow, coming Thursday, something like that, um, to try and do uh, hope what we'll hope will be our first uh, true quantum key distribution between flying drones. Oh, wow. Good luck. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long haul to, to get that to work. It just, it's not that easy to get drones to send photons from one drone into another and to catch it. Um, You're sending one photon, or how many? Well, it's a string, but each, but, yeah. each, okay. each pulse has, um, let's say, a fifth, a fifth of a photon. 
which just means a fifth that, of a photon. Well, it means that you have to send five pulses until you get one on average. So it's a, we take an, a, take basically in this case a uh, an LED, and and we attenuate the heck out of it. We make short pulses that are I don't remember ten nanoseconds long or something like that, and then you just you put a lot of attenuation so that any given pulse mostly is empty but has a small probability twenty percent probability of having a proton. Mm. Um, and that, anyway, it just turns out it's not that easy to get. The, the sending one photon is not the hard thing. The hard thing is just getting two things to stay optically locked so mm. that they're pointing exactly at each other right. so that you can catch the photons and not have them go someplace else. Um, and you need to be, in order to not have a lot of background coming in, you need to really only be looking in a very particular direction. Yeah, and, you know, that's, you know, we, we, we could have talked about so many things, and uh, that's the you know, like we, we didn't get to talk about like quantum computers and uh, the, the seek, you know, like space-based quantum communication, which is also super interesting. Uh, a lot of the other things you've done with um, other quantum stuff, but um, I suppose you'll, you'll have to uh, come back another time just to talk about those things. But uh, before we start, you know, ending, you know, we a grad student uh, reached out to us and and he asked this question and, and he wanted to know the answer. What's the uh, so you? Like the biggest product of two prime numbers that you were able to factorize in a day. I'm sorry. Is the question what a classical computer can do in a no, day? No, 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 or no. What so a like a computer can do in a day. No. So I don't know. So the 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 question that was sent to us was, well, so what was the biggest product of two prime numbers that you were able to factorize in a day? Great. So this is tied into the fact that quantum computers uh, can solve can factor efficiently. So factoring is saying, you know, 15 is 3 times 5, for example, mm -hmm. in terms of prime constituents. Right. And the reason that that's relevant is that a lot of the public key encryption that you use, so whenever you have an HTTPS, the, the H uh, means that you're using this protocol, sorry, the S, I should say. S. The S secure. means that it's PM, a secure, yeah. secure protocol. Um, uh, it's based on this fact that someone you, you send out to the world uh, a number, which is a product of two large primes, and you know what those products are, and not you in particular, but your, your, your <laughs> operating computer. system or your, your software, uh, but no one else does, and they can use uh, that big number uh, to encrypt a message in a way that even they can't to decrypt it, and then they send that back to you, and because you know the two prime constituents, then you can decrypt the message. So that's like an RSA type of encryption, something mm -hmm. like that. So that's a lot of our public... Uh, a lot of our messages are, yeah, I guess most of them are, are encrypted using something like that. And that's why quantum computing is, was originally uh, uh, a lot of great interest and still is to the, to the government because if someone could suddenly hack all of those messages, that becomes seriously, seriously you know, damaging, potentially. I mean, flying, flying planes into buildings, we just had 9-11, of course, uh, and you guys He's even alive at mm, no? a year before. Yeah, okay. Um, so that was a serious, serious thing, obviously, and, and greatly affected the, the country. But compared to if instead people had access like, you know, to all our secure communications, health records, bank records, uh, as we go to automated vehicles, you know, just being able to securely, what's the message of how far is my vehicle from the intersection, which no longer has any lights anymore, and now everything is going to be happening, you know, automated, where all the cars are supposed to be talking to each other. If you were to somehow hack that and spoof and tell them all that they were 10 feet distant, 
from where they actually are, you'd have massive collisions everywhere around the country. I mean, you would, civilization as we, as we know it would stop. So that's, that's why uh, there's a huge interest in knowing, can you make a quantum computer that would make all of those insecure? So quantum computers, it turns out, it turns out that that problem of factoring is believed to be difficult for classical computers, although not proven, but believed to be. Um, and quantum computers can solve that problem much more efficiently in a much, much, much shorter time. If you had a large-scale quantum computer, you could do it much more quickly. So as an example, um, if I can remember the numbers off the top of my head, um, you know, if you have like a, a 300 digit number or something like that, or 200 digit number, you could show that um, it will take, let me, let me do a shorter one first. These are going to be representative, but maybe not correct. If you have like a 50 digit number, then uh, something like blue, blue waters, you know, our supercomputer, yeah, that could maybe factor that in a second, and a quantum computer would take like 10 seconds, no if second. we're working at like a, a, a gigahertz. And then you're saying, well, that's Stupid, why do I want the quantum computer then? I've already got blue waters and it's doing it 10 times faster. But let's go from 50 up to 100. Okay, now blue waters is going to take something like 1,000 years and the quantum computer is going to take... Uh, 200 it, it, it goes, seconds. Well, it goes like the cube. So instead of 100 seconds, it's going to take um, like... Uh, instead, of one, instead of one minute, it's going to take eight That's, minutes yeah. or something like that. Yeah? And uh, if instead we make it another factor of 100, blue waters, or another, another 100, not a, not a factor, but another 100, instead of, we're in 50 to 100, let's make it 200 instead. Now blue waters takes you know, more, much more than the age of the universe to be able to do it, and the quantum computer goes up from eight minutes up to 24 minutes or something like that. So there's an incredibly big enhancement on what the quantum computer can do in terms of factoring. <laughs> Something I'd like to say, quantum computers are exponentially good at an exponentially small number of problems. <laughs> so they're not, you know, they're not good at, like, the, when you get a quantum internet, you're not going to use it to download Game of Thrones any faster. It's going to be slower, if anything. You could be completely secure, but it's going to be, it, it would be probably slower, because in the classical case, you can send all these bright pulses, so you don't have to worry about loss. So to answer the question that was asked, what is the largest number that's been factored by a quantum computer? I think that's what's, what's being asked. It's, uh, I'm not sure. For, I guess I'm not sure. I think it might be 21. It's small. It's very, very small. So to actually factor something that you couldn't do, like on a, on a laptop or something like that, you need maybe 50,000 quantum bits. And right now, Google, you know, and IBM, you know, they have of order 100. Mm. Yeah, so we're still a ways away from getting there. So quite a quite a road to hoe. Yeah. Uh, I would say <laughs> the factoring problem is, you know, in some ways the least interesting of right. all the things that quantum computers might be able to do. Uh, being able to solve quantum mechanics problems is by far the more interesting one. And that might seem to people who aren't interested in quantum mechanics very uninteresting and very irrelevant to them, except it's not because anything like how proteins fold up, how medicines work, if you want to come up with a, a new vaccine, those large molecules, how they behave is a very complicated quantum mechanics problem that you absolutely cannot solve exactly on a classical computer. So, you know, if you want to come up with, uh, if you want to simulate a Zika virus, for example, I, I did some calculations uh, to kind of estimate this to exactly figure out where all the electrons are, where all the protons are on classical computers would take something like three trillion years. 
and a quantum computer, you know, a, a quantum computer with a couple thousand qubits should be able to do that in, you know, a minute or something like that. Now, I don't know how many decades away it is that we have a quantum computer that has really high fidelity, couple thousand qubits. I don't know, maybe it's only a decade away. That's hard to say. Yeah, and you know, it, even things like, um, like Amazon packages, for instance, like, you know, even things like that would, would greatly be useful having a, you know, with like optimization, like batteries. And yeah, quantum computers like are, are thought to be very helpful for optimization. I will say that one thing that's difficult, though, you know, you might have heard there was uh, Google had announced quantum supremacy a couple of years right, ago, which meant right. that their quantum computer was able to do something much, much faster than a classical computer. I will say the, I think the definition of quantum supremacy is that the quantum can do something faster. Just faster, not necessarily much, much, much faster. It's hoped yeah. that it'll be much, much faster, yeah. but faster than a classical computer. That's like the threshold. And when they announced it, the, the reason that this is not that easy to say when that actually happens um, is that when they announced it, Google said, well, okay, we estimate that it would take classical computers, I forget what they said, like a, like a thousand, uh, some huge, huge, very huge number in order to do this. And then people from IBM, I think it was IBM, said, you weren't doing the classical computation we're doing it in like a really stupid way. And there's a much smarter way where instead of taking uh, you know, 10,000 days, you can do it in just a couple weeks. And then a couple days later, people push that down. And my understanding is now that they've been able to show uh, you know, they can do it in like a couple hours or something like that on a classical computer. So now, OK, how much of a, of a supremacy is it? The quantum is still faster. But you know, if you told someone we did it two times faster, it's incremental, yeah. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. And so the one thing that's difficult, so for example, with the optimization problem is it's very difficult to prove what the optimal speed that you could do things classically is. And in fact, one of the things that people have seen is that people are now looking, some of the ways that they sped up the classical processor to do better is they use some of the tricks that quantum computers use and the so-called quantum-inspired computing. So it's not using a quantum computer, but it's using some of the same uh, coding principles and tricks that previously weren't known in classical computation right. and applying them and making classical computers better, which is, I have to say, if that were the only outcome of the quantum information revolution, I would be disappointed. But it wouldn't be that bad of a, if, if, right. if, if that enables us to do all of our classical computations 100 times faster without using quantum computers, I guess we would be, we would say that, oh, that's probably money well invested anyway, even if it's not what we were originally thinking. But I think we'll do better than that quite a bit. I think so, too. We, yeah. we hope so, too. <laughs> Indeed. And you, to conclude our show, we have a, a quick and, and fun section called Underrated or Overrated. Before, it's called what moment? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun, uh, quick se a section that we call Overrated, Underrated. So, so overrated or underrated? So we give you a topic and you, you say underrated or overrated. Okay. Be before we get to that, yeah. um, there's one question um, we ask um, usually is, what advice would you give to any students or any, anyone who wants to start getting interested in quantum mechanics or maybe is overwhelmed just by the nature surrounding the topic or any, any advice that you would like to give? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, it depends who they are and what their level of interest is. I mean, of course, you can go online and you can see all kinds of YouTube videos about things like that. So that's, that's a good place to start because there's all kind of, at all different levels, there's a lot of things like that. Tutorials, you know, that's a good thing to Google is something that says tutorial mm. and it, it's usually at a lower level. Um, 
uh, you know, you're going to start seeing these things appear in more and more places, uh, even in high school curricula and things like that. So that's one of the goals is to get people introduced at an earlier stage. Uh, and we're certainly motivated. We're very interested in having non-quantum people learn about these things. Not that they can necessarily program quantum, quantum computer, but if they start learning what the capabilities are, you know, a lot of the capabilities of this, all of them, I'm sure, almost all of them, were not invented by the people who invented the phone and came up with the circuitry and the antenna mm. design and stuff like that. It's that the phone came up, there were some capabilities, and then people saw, oh, I can use that to figure out where the cops are when I'm driving, or I can use that maybe to figure out where the traffic and where the traffic right. is bad, so I'm going to reroute around that. Certainly the people who were designing phones originally, cell phones, had no idea that that was going to be an application. So similarly, applications of quantum networks I'm sure are going to be way beyond quantum cryptography, way beyond hooking together different quantum computers, which is another thing right. that they're good for, way beyond distributed quantum sensing. There are going to be a bunch of things we haven't thought about. So having other people learn enough about quantum and what its capabilities might be so they can start thinking about what the applications is really important. Um, so, you know, I encourage people to try and learn a little bit more about that. And then in terms of students, if people are interested, you know, and they're taking science classes here, uh, you know, they should contact some of the professors and ask, you know, are you looking for people to help out? Uh, nothing, nothing helps you more than, it's like if you're trying to learn a language, you know, you kind of get dumped in the, yeah. in the foreign right. country. Um, it's, it's kind of painful at first and awkward and you don't really know what's going on, but that's really how you get a better sense of, uh, better sense of working on things. So that was my advice to students. All right. Okay, which I'm sure my advice is probably overrated. Okay. <laughs> which leads us into the... Yes, uh, overrated or underrated. So that the, the first one, uh, swing dancing, which are, you seem to be an expert. Overrated or underrated? Nowadays, underrated. You think so? I yeah, mean, not that many people are doing it. We've, we've kind of gone through a phase, and it's and particularly with COVID and such. So yeah, we'd certainly like to have a lot more people come out to dance with us. It's fun. Where, where do you guys usually like dance? Well, uh, I mean, the, the Swing Society uh, has events on Thursday nights. And uh, my partner and I, we teach at the Park District on Sunday nights, oh, wow. Sunday evenings. And then there's like live music events that happen. Like this Saturday at the Rose Bowl Tavern, there's a great band that's playing on uh, what, 3 to 5. Uh, anyway, they're typ typical events around town, and we go to Indianapolis or Chicago or Peoria, something like that. Bloomington. Do you have the, the, the picture? Oh, uh, let me grab my. Yeah. And then, uh, and then next one uh, startups. And quantum startups is a way to accelerate the progress in, in quantum physics. Overrated or un underrated? Um, I, I, I want to be on the. I kind of want to be on the fence. I mean, fence. people are starting things up, and I think it's important to start things up. Um, you know, some of them are going to be successful. Some of them are not going to be successful. I think if you don't start pushing on that at all, then you're going to 
you're going to be too slow at coming up with advances. Um, so I think it's probably rated correctly. Interesting. Yeah, and and there's usually a, lo a lot of accelerators and things that are coming up these days. And yeah, who knows? I may I may start a quantum company at one point. We'll awesome. see. <laughs> and then yeah, the the, the last thing here. Uh, Have you seen this person before? Have I seen this person? That, that this, seems to be your, your twin brother. This is, <laughs> that's funny, yeah. Uh, yeah Michael, <laughs> Michael Douglas, but not Michael Douglas, as uh, Hank, Hank Pym. Hank Pym. Hank Pym, yes, the father of Ant-Man. Have, Ant Have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but then Paul Rudd becomes... I mean, not technically he's, the he's father. The, he's the one father. who's known. Right, right. <clears throat> but like, comic-wise... Hank Pym is... That's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I used to read a lot of comic books when I was a kid. In fact, that's why I'm a scientist. Mm. You wanted to be a Captain quant, uh, Quantum. So. <laughs> um, no, it's funny because uh, I was talking to some people a, a while ago about why I got into physics and, and science, and it was because I read a lot of comic books as a kid, and there were just a lot of superheroes were actually science-y people, like Spider-Man and... Uh, Ant-Man and the Flash was a chemist and the exactly. was a nuclear physicist and the Atom was an atomic physicist mm -hmm. and, and all of these Iron Man's an engineer. Um, and it occurred to me that at the time, and still, it, uh, there are no women superhero scientists, I believe. <clears throat> at least at the time, there certainly weren't any. There were like pilots and lawyers and you know extraterrestrial beings. Uh, or girlfriends of <laughs> people. I don't know what Sue Storm did <laughs> in, her, in her normal life, uh, but there were not any scientists. And uh, if I had been, if I had been a girl growing up, I mean, mm. that was my inroad. That's really what drove me to it. So I would not be uh, in science at the moment. And that is still a, a terrible lack that we have, unfortunately. It's starting to change a little bit. Some of the TV shows, like uh, Agents of Shield and stuff, they have a lot. Right. Of, a lot of the sciencey people are women. Which is great. Like I would say, even Star Trek, like there's one, like Captain Uhura, but, but even then. Um, yeah, I mean, in Star Trek, some of the other science people, yeah. some some of the science people are women, mm. but there's not enough. Certainly, certainly true. That's a good point. Like in comic books, they're not like no, scientists. No, yeah. not at all. That could be a, a good idea to start a, a comic were you know, the, the main Well, there was. I have tag. a friend who had this, uh, wrote this comic, but it wasn't in the mainstream, Spectra. Spectra. It was uh, a light-controlling female superhero. It's kind of fun. You can, I'm sure you can Google it, find it online. I will. I, like, will. I think there were like six episodes, that, uh, six issues that she wrote. Hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming and, and talking to us. It's been super fun to talk with you. Thank you. Uh, you know, even though we, we talked for a little bit, uh, I think that's... Never enough to, to yeah. talk about these topics, and uh, so hopefully you come back in the future. Yeah, love but, to. It's fun. But uh, thank you so much. Yeah, great to talk. We had a great time. Um, Me too. The time flies. It's so fast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. Next time yeah. we talk about lab escape. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, thank you everyone for watching. Um, I'm sure you had as I hope you had as much fun as we did having this conversation with Dr. Quiet. Um, there's still a lot more to talk about. We talked about photons, um, classical versus quantum nature of light, um, quantum entanglement, all these, all these topics that might seem overwhelming, but if you just try to, try to understand it, that you'll find that they're so beautiful and how they're being experimented upon and just being learned all around the world. Um, 
we appreciate his help in making it more accessible to students and um, just making it more digestible to people like us who don't have much background about these topics but and we know it can feel overwhelming at first but it's just about taking the first step into learning it and then you open your doors to so much more and so much so much fun so much excitement and um, it's just I think it's just amazing to learn about. So thank you once again. Um, thank you. Have a great time. Thank you. And stay curious, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Perfect.